Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Whittingham here on WQAM here until 10 o'clock tonight. Miami Marlins, as Danny mentioned in the update, up by seven runs to three. We're in the middle of the sixth inning. Jordan Yamamoto, a decent start. Two and runs given up in five innings, had a rocky second inning, but everything other than that was pretty damn good. He's uh, one of their promising young prospects, Yamamoto. ERA at 1.59. Which uh, do you know which trade Danny he was acquired in Jordan Yamamoto for the Marlins? I want to say that that was the um, that was the Ozuna trade, but I might be wrong. Okay, I will uh, investigate it now on his Wikipedia page momentarily. But uh, yeah, so he's uh, one of the prospects that's coming through for the Marlins that they hope could potentially be. Uh, he was in the Yelich trade. He came with uh, uh, Brinson, Monte Harrison, and Isan Diaz. Oh, good! That finally that trade started. Yeah, I know that's. But I mean, it's it's not just this one start. It's uh, it's a number of starts here uh, for Jordan Yamamoto that have gone pretty well. So uh, he continues to roll, and um, he will uh, he will hopefully be someone for the Marlins that they can build around once they actually get to a place. Uh, where they can be good. He's only 23 years old as well, so you'd imagine uh, you get him under control for the next four or five years, and that's someone that you found. Uh, but here are his starts since he's... Uh, first off, they won all of his starts. It was a damn miracle, uh, except for his most recent one against Atlanta, which they only lost one nothing. So here, here are his starts. Uh, against Atlanta, six innings, two hits, no runs, and they lost one nil. Uh, win against Philly, four innings, Two earned runs, two, two of them earned as well, two of them unearned as well, um, and struck out four. Uh, one in a game away to Philly, 6-4, five innings, two earned runs, seven strikeouts. Against the Cardinals twice, seven innings, two hits, no earned runs, seven strikeouts. Seven innings, three hits, no earned runs, five strikeouts. So in the whole of his Marlins career so far, he's only given up six earned runs in six starts. Pretty damn solid. So could be a potential fine for the Marlins, and certainly for their sake, uh, they hope it is. I'm just uh, clearing out my uh, my web browser, and I was uh, I I found uh, Danny that anecdote that you were that I referenced earlier uh, when it came to Dwayne Wade. So you said uh, your Pat Riley anecdote when it comes to fi- uh, fitness was forgive me someone in the nineties. It was uh, it was a player 1999 season. We signed Clarence Weatherspoon. Clarence Weatherspoon. I was going to say the, that, but I want to be wrong. 76ers. Yeah. So and and he got into immaculate shape. Uh, under Pat Riley, lost a bunch of weight. And uh, so that was your anecdote that you associate with heat culture. For me, my anecdote that I associate with heat culture uh, comes from an SB Nation piece written about Dwayne Wade. And it says here, after being traded 
Dwayne Wade indulges in his last unhealthy meal of the season with LeBron James, and upon arriving in Miami, gives a chunk of his personal wine collection to head coach Eric Spolstra. Heat GM Pat Riley tells Wade, who rented out a Waffle House on National Pancake Day last year, that the pancakes and syrup era is over. That's marvelous. And that's uh, because we were talking about Deion Waiters and his uh, Instagram message. That, for me, is heat culture. It's you're more committed to your craft here, you try harder, and you get in better shape. And you work with us to help improve and, and, and take advantage of your best habits and eliminate your worst. And so that, for me, is what heat culture is. I mean, distill it down. Get in shape, try harder than you have in other places, and listen to us. Like, that, that's heat culture. And so Dion Waiters not being in shape is sort of an affront to heat culture, and I get why they were, they were mad and why the fan base was mad at him. I remember we also had another guy who was actually the first guy I remember we did that with was a guy named, you remember Ike Austin? I do, yes. Okay, Ike Austin was a guy that we got him in great shape, became a backup for Lonzo Mourning, gave us big minutes. We traded him in, in what was actually turned out to be one of, the, one of the most useless trades we ever made. We traded him to the, to the Clippers, if I remember correctly, for Brent mm-hmm. Berry. And Brent Berry didn't even make our playoff roster that year because he just was not playing, I guess, their defense or whatever was going on at the time. Sure. But we got him into shape. And the minute he got out of here and he went to the Clippers, he ballooned right back out. <laughs> he became what he yeah. was when he got when he before he got here. Yeah, and and that's uh, that's what the Heat associate themselves as. I was trying to find Manny Navarro's piece on uh, on the fat binders, which are basically uh, the files that they keep on all the players uh, to show them before and after uh, their their stints with the Heat organization. But uh, unfortunately, I could not find it. Pat Riley always says that when you're going to eat a meal, always make sure you eat half the meal and take the other half home with you. Right. That's kind of like one of his preaching points. Right. And it makes sense. I mean, they they get players in better shape and they have better eating habits and therefore they play better basketball. That's how it works. Now, again, I just want to clear, clarify with the waiters thing. I'm not advocating for people to go into his Instagram comments and write vile things. I'm just saying as a method of self-defense, right, uh, for my, myself um, and for other media pundits, they're going, hey, it's not great that Deion Waiters isn't in shape. I'm not, I'm not making fun of him. I'm just saying it's not good for your basketball career. You're not in shape. Um, also, at the same time, saying, okay, let's not call him a bleepity bleep on social media. Well, there's the line Yeah, right exactly. There. Yeah, you, know, you is, can draw is, a line. One is being professional. It's your job to report on him as an athlete. And if he's not in shape, he's not in shape, and he's, and he's not, not going to perform on the court. The Heat know it. You know it. He knows it. That's all well and good. Taking it to the other line where you're attacking him, his family, calling him names, just basically asking, acting like a classless jerk. Like That's got to mm-hmm. be the line, man. For sure. Uh, now, I want to move on to something that I found on Dave Hyde's blog, which I found absolutely astounding. So Dave Hyde uh, wrote today, he actually mentioned how Justin Herbert might be the more interesting quarterback prospect because Sports Illustrated uh, put Herbert as the number one pick to Miami in their mock draft instead of Tua. And that Herbert might actually be the one that you want, not Tua Tungavailoa, um, which I don't agree with, um, even based off limited sample. I just I think Tua is a generational player. I really do. I think he's going to change the way the quarterback position is played. I think he is an absolutely astounding prospect. And I'm really looking forward to seeing him at the pro level. And I would desperately hope for that to be with the Dolphins. Just remember, there were also articles about how Ryan Leaf is probably the smarter pick over Peyton Manning. It's a good point. 
But, I mean, Justin Herbert could also be really good, too. Like, I, I, I'm not going to tell – like, people that scout him go, he's got all the tools, he's got all the skill sets, he's tall, he can move, uh, he's accurate, he can think the game. So I, I'm not ruling out that Justin Herbert can be a great quarterback, too. I just think that, too, is generational. And the throws that he makes are astounding. And the dominance of their offense against a good level of competition in college football is astounding. And I, I think he's going to change – Whatever organization he steps into. I don't think there's any way you can, if you're looking for a quarterback and you're the first pick in the draft, I don't think there's any way you can justify not taking Tua, no matter how good you think Justin Herbert goes. Because if not, you're probably going to end up with a fan base asking you this. How do you f*** that up? How do you f*** that up? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's right there. It's in front of you. I mean, you'd have to make that decision. Have to. But um, so the second item in his blog item today was... Him saying that the Dolphins are staggeringly threadbare at the defensive end position. I, I don't think a lot of people realize just how much they've been gutted one year to the next. Now, this is a little bit where Brian Flores's nomenclature and complexity in his defensive scheme, I think, is going to change the way that we have conversations about position groups and the very narrow way that we look at things, where you go... Well, you're, you're lacking a defensive end, you're lacking a defensive tackle, you're lacking a linebacker, you're lacking an outside linebacker, pass rushing, defensive end, corner, free safety, safety, and you nail down everything in an offense by position. And Brian Flores sort of believes in positionless football. That's his way of looking at the game. It's sort of the Patriots' way of looking at the game. They will sometimes play with one down lineman, with six defensive backs, with five linebackers, and you know everyone standing up, Nobody, everyone with their hand in the dirt. They will do everything. And so to just say that the defensive end is this thing, I think in the, in the prism of Brian Flores, he would tell you, you're looking at it way too narrowly. And that we're not threadbare at this position because we've got other players who can do similar things, and we think our scheme will end up changing things and not making you think of football in just this binary way that you've looked at in years previous where it's these positions that need to do these things at these times. And basically, Brian Flores is going to say everyone's got to do everything. Defensive tackles got to pass rush and stop the run. Linebackers have got to cover, pass rush, and stop the run. Everyone's doing everything. But in the end, (laughs) even with positionless football, someone's got to line up hand in the dirt, opposite and a left tackle or a right tackle, and get to the quarterback. And here's where the Dolph- here's what the Dolphins have in those areas. So even with sacks coming from team schemes and different areas and you want to anticipate, here's what they got. Here are the career sack totals of Dolphins defensive ends from Dave Hyde in his Sun Sentinel blog today. Charles Harris, three sacks. Jonathan Woodard, one sack. Tank Carradine, five and a half sacks. Nate Orchard, five sacks. Jonathan Ledbetter, zero sacks, rookie. Dwayne Hendricks, zero sacks, rookie. So in total, the Dolphins arrive next season with 14.5 total sacks from their players listed as defensive ends. That is threadbare. That is down to the studs. If you go back to last year or the previous years, you had Wake, Branch. Last year was Robert Quinn and William Hayes. Get four legitimate starting caliber defensive ends, and you're going, how are we going to find enough snaps for all these guys? And William Hayes was a really key figure. I mean, you remember at the beginning of the year, 
their defense looked really good when he played, and then when he got hurt for the entirety of the year, and I, I don't think he's in the league anymore, um, got a lot worse. So they had some real quality in that player. They have a Hall of Famer in Cameron, in Cameron Wake, I think. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he won't be. Maybe he will. But for me, he's a Hall of Famer. You have solid player you pay a lot of money to in Andre Branch. Really good player in Robert Quinn, who's been good in previous stops. And William Hayes. And Charles Harris, who is, you know, a second-year rookie. They're going, okay, maybe he can be the guy that makes a leap this year. It's going to be hard for him to crack the rotation, but you've got something there. And now you're asking him to lead this group of otherwise rookie and journeyman players. 14 and a half sacks between all of your defensive ends. I'm going to look up right now the total number of sacks that Cameron Wake himself has in his career. I mean, they've got nothing at that position. And again, this is where Brian Flores will say you're looking at the game in a binary way, and we're not just replacing Cameron Wake's 98 sacks. We're trying to create a scheme. Again, 98 sacks compared to 14 and a half of the whole of the Dolphins' defensive end group. You're going to last year thinking it's the strength of your team. You go into la- in the last two years paying more to that position than you do to any other position on the roster, and now you've gone in totally the opposite direction. You've taken the team down to the studs at that position. There is no position group on the roster that more symbolizes what the Dolphins have done from a roster standpoint than defensive end. 14 and a half total sacks. They've basically got nothing there. They, they didn't really do anything in terms of the draft. I mean, they, they, they draft Christian Wilkins, but he's more of a defensive tackle. And look, maybe he gets asked to, be, to, to, to play as a pass-rushing defensive end from a 3-4 formation, and he can get sacks, and they can get sacks from linebackers, but in the end, someone's got to line up offside an offensive tackle and beat them. And right now, you might be looking at a roster that's got zero of those guys. Text Machine has taken some issue with your quarterback with your quarterback take here. Ooh. Let's just, just, just start okay. right here. What do we got? Okay. Tua, held, Tua had a bad game against Georgia as well. His worst two games were the two most important. He beat Georgia the year before, bit but once they got grammar. But once <laughs> they get to book, once they once they got a book on him, yeah. he looked horrible. He's also surrounded by the best talent in college football. He had a terrible spring game. He is totally overrated. Herbert will be a better NFL quarterback. Mark my words. Again, it's possible. I'm not. I'm look. I'm not saying. Uh, I'm. I'm not saying that. Um. That 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 Tua is nailed on because no one's nailed on. But I mean, you you go through his games last year, and again, it's against the SEC. If we're, if we're talking about you know quarterback of North Dakota State. That's one thing. But okay, here's here's his last year. First off, he never played in fourth quarters. Okay, so let's start there. But in in the thick of the ACC schedule, well, first off, yeah, this is my favorite: Louisiana Lafayette. 8 for 8, 128 yards, 2 touchdowns, out of here. <laughs> uh, Texas A&M, 387 yards, 4 touchdowns, no interceptions. Don't play in the 4th quarter, 45 to the 23 victory. 10 of 13, 334 yards on 13 attempts, 4 touchdowns against the University of Arkansas. 265 yards, 3 touchdowns against Missouri. And Missouri? In a 39 to 10 win. 306 yards, 4 touchdowns, no interceptions. He doesn't throw an interception until November of the college football year. Against LSU, 295 yards, two touchdowns against LSU. Then picks up a little bit of an injury against Mississippi State, which ultimately hampers the rest of his year. In the Iron Bowl, one of the biggest games of the year, 324 yards, five touchdowns, 52-21 victory over Auburn. And then, as you mentioned, Georgia in the SEC Championship game gets pulled on account of the injury that he sustains in the Iron Bowl. Then, 
against Oklahoma in the semifinal. People remember the championship game, which, by the way, his numbers are still decent. We'll get to that in a second. But in the semifinal against Oklahoma, here in Miami, 24-27, 318 yards, four touchdowns. Against Clemson, the game that everyone says that he played poorly, and look, they lost by four touchdowns, so that's that's the end of that. But remember that it was 14-14, everyone's thinking this is going to be like a 55-55 game, and he still finishes with 295 yards and two touchdowns. So for me, I, I think that he could potentially be a generational quarterback. And Herbert might have the more pro-ready skill set and the more prototypical things. I just, I really don't care about that stuff anymore. To me, like that measurables, height, and... That's all crap. And, and pocket presence, like obviously that's so important. Pocket presence is important. Yeah, yeah, no, but I'm saying like just that's because, not like, but just because the quarterback positions played a little bit differently doesn't mean that it's a lesser quarterback prospect. And so, to me, the way that Tua plays the position is just extraordinary at, uh, at a college level, at a good level in the SEC. I, I totally agree with you. I think he's got a, he's got that edge factor. He's got a strong arm. He can move around. He may not be your prototypical guy, but he's got something going on for him. Personally, I th- I've been noticing a lot of this like. This like this 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 hate from the fan base as if they don't want Tua, and you know that's all well and good. You can like what you want. You can like what you want. You can not like who you want to like. But the fact of the matter is, this fan base supported Ryan Tannehill for seven years, yeah. and just kept waiting and waiting and waiting. So your ability your ability to evaluate quarterback <laughs> talent to me is next to nil and nothing at this yeah. point. And the other thing is, I gotta be honest with you, we don't like Nick Saban down here in Miami. And personally, I think. I don't like Nick Saban, but I have this ability to remove my bias from something and say, I like good football players, and he produces good football players. I want them on my professional football team. Heck, For sure. if they want to transfer out of Alabama and come to my school, all about that too. Don't really care. But he's an Alabama guy, so I've got a lot of fans down here. They're going to go, oh, well, you know, he's Alabama. He's not that good. Trevor Lawrence. I mean, Trevor Lawrence is, is another one that this one texture says sure. is, a, is a generational guy. Herbert's bigger and stronger. But Tua, I said it here now, he's totally overrated. Totally overrated. I mean, I mean, I mean, come on, guys. Like, put your bias played, aside. The kid can play. He played eight games in an SEC schedule without throwing an interception. One. They were so good as an offense, they like hardly played fourth quarters. I, I, I think the world of Tua. I think he's going to be the kind of guy that will change a franchise, and that's what you want for the Dolphins. A guy that can change the franchise. The outlook of the organization from being drab and when is this ever going to get fixed? The, only a quarterback can do that. Only a quarterback can do that. And I think Tua, and I, I by the way, I also think that of Trevor Lawrence. So a true freshman to play that way in a national championship game is extraordinary. But I also think Tua is that too. He just said, he had a bad game. He had a bad game. And he was great against Oklahoma. It wasn't a good, was, wasn't as good against Clemson. But for me, Tua is the player that you want and the player I'm most looking forward to watching in the whole of the NFL next year because I think the Dolphins are going to be in for him. And I think Stephen Ross wants him, by the way. And he could potentially be the most impactful player that plays next year for the Dolphins in 2019. We're back with more after this. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. 
Winningham here until 10 o'clock tonight. We'll talk to Ira Winderman in about 10 minutes from now about some Miami Heat basketball. Last show being done out of these studios. This is it. I'm honored to be here. Yeah. We move down south. Tomorrow morning, Joe Rose, Zach Krantz, Danny Rabinowitz, Hollywood, and Biff. That's how we know him. I don't know if the morning show still calls him Biff. But, uh, but Biff... We'll be there with the crew in the morning, 6 a.m. from the new studios down a bit further south. So we move into our new digs where there will be windows and new equipment. Not yet covered by bits of food and coffee that have come out of people's mouths. Give it time. Right, yeah, it'll 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 be there momentarily, as you can see here. Oh, yes, that I'm, infamous mic. I, I'm, I'm talking, well, I mean, it's infamous mics. Mics, plural. That, uh... Are, are making the way down south. I imagine coffee and coffee and food will be on those microphones in no time. We are a foul group of humans. It's true. It's going to be closer to my house, though, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, I mean, this place, on its best day, like, you know, I'm coming here on a Saturday morning at 9 a.m., I can be here like in 12 minutes, but I mean, the other place isn't that much farther. And it's a nice commute for me anyway, because I, I go down the beach. So I can just go all the way down and then get on the 79th Street Causeway and be there. So No, my commute up here in the afternoon, up that 995 North Oof. at about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. I mean, I, I, Brutal. I, I, can't get, I, I can't end that fast enough. Yeah. Well, and for me, uh, so I, I go down Miami Gardens Drive, and that at 4.30 in the afternoon, is, it's a parking lot, no matter when. No matter when you go. It doesn't matter. But uh, I, don't, I don't think the audience is here to listen to our commutes. Um, I actually want to get to something uh, a bit off the beaten path. Uh, because uh, I don't know if uh, soccer is discussed a great deal. Although I had a great conversation. I really enjoyed, um, ultimately, what we discussed uh, with Omar Kelly and Alex Dono last week on the Midday Show, uh, talking about the pay gaps and about Inter-Miami stuff. But uh, there actually is uh, some news as it relates to Inter-Miami, our MLS team, that we are getting in a year from now. Yesterday, it was confirmed that Tyler Boyd, who is a United States men's national team player, uh, he just joined... Uh, the U.S. He was previously a New Zealand international, grew up here, uh, but then moved to New Zealand uh, fairly young. There was thought that he was going to play for the New Zealand national team. Instead, he's chosen to play for the United States. Appeared at the last Gold Cup, was uh, probably the breakout star of that Gold Cup, uh, and now um, has sealed a move to Besiktas, which is a team in Turkey uh, that is you know, one of the stronger European teams. Uh, they have a bit of pedigree, and the Turkish league is kind of in that second tier uh, of leagues, he'll play uh, in European competition against some of the bigger clubs in Europe. So it's good for him as 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 you know in the development of a player. But the reason why I bring it up is because Inter Miami, our MLS club that starts in March, so I have a conversation with my boss today, and uh, it was funny because he goes, "So this thing starts soon, right?" I'm like, yeah, it starts in eight months. In eight months from now, there will be an MLS team playing in Fort Lauderdale, and you know, mid season, eight months from now. It's actually kind of incredible that they don't have a player yet, they don't have a coach, and there's going to be a team playing in eight months. But one of the players that could have started with them was Tyler Boyd, this United States men's national team player. And so (laughs) through this very bizarre set of rules, now, basically, if I can distill it down as I've I've sorted this out uh, with some of my friends, where we basically have have dubbed it the dibs list. 
So basically, in MLS, if you're going to sign a player from outside of MLS, you have to call dibs. Because MLS, while it is a group of next year 24 to 26 teams uh, that will be doing battle uh, for the right to win the to win the championship, they all actually are. It's almost like a fran- like like a like a McDonald's franchise where they're all actually MLS, but you get called Inter Miami, you get called Seattle Sounders, you get called it's it's called single entity, right? Where the league owns all of the teams and gives one twenty-six of the league to each of the teams. It's a bit different than the other American sports. Not all that different, but it's a bit different. So because they operate that way, they have to create these rules uh, so that all the teams have a chance to go and sign a player. But ultimately, you're, bringing, you're signing a player to MLS. You're not signing him to Inter-Miami. And so every team's got to have a shot at every player from outside of the league. And the only way that you can sign a player that belongs to another team that isn't like a United States men's national team player, because that goes through a different process. But if you want to sign Cristiano Ronaldo, let's just say, you first have to call dibs on the player. Basically, right? There, there's this thing called the allocation... It's, it's, I'm sorry, the discovery list, right? So you have seven players that you can put on your discovery list, which is essentially, you've called dibs. Right, so for Tyler Boyd, Inter Miami was the first to call dibs. A lot of teams put in their claim, and Miami got there first. They put in the claim. They're negotiating with the player. Ultimately, the player didn't decide to come here. But you do know that this organization is smart. Was on top of it the moment that it was announced he was going to be a U.S. player, and straight away put in that claim. We call dibs, and I just I just found it funny that. The that our club sort of got there first, and they now have to sadly take him off of their dibs list because they called dibs. But he ended up signing for another club, so we'll see uh, what they end up doing. There's some rumors linking them to some teenagers from Argentina, uh, which is a path that a lot of MLS teams have now pursued, basically in the interest of making money. Um, there are many ways to make money in sports, but one of the things that's afforded to soccer teams that is not afforded to other sports is that you can get rid of your players for money. And so there is now a growing thought that this is the revenue source that could take MLS to the next level. You have TV deals, you have sponsorship, you have ticket sales. But ultimately, the thing that can take MLS to another level is if they started buying players at a cheap rate and selling them for a more expensive rate. So for example, Atlanta United bought uh, Miguel Almiron, who is a winger for Paraguay, for $8 million, and they just sold him to the Premier League for 25 So they just netted $17 million. It's basically like buying a stock, right? And it's sold at 300%. It's incredible. And so that's what some other teams are trying to do, and I guess Miami's potentially in on this game. There's a couple of kids from Argentina that they're in on to potentially go and be their first signing, which would be amazing because I think a lot of people were expecting, myself included, for it to be a really famous person that they started with. And those rumors have kind of cooled off. I mean, I, I've, I have, you know, all my tweet deck lists uh, fired up and ready to go uh, in case ever, anything ever gets linked. But at the moment, all is quiet on the, all is quiet on the Western Front with Inter-Miami and the big money signings. And so I think that Miami is going to pursue what is ultimately the more economically salient route. And also, LAFC are winning games with a 20-year-old Uruguayan on the wing who's scoring a ton of goals for them. Atlanta United 
won MLS Cup with 23-year-old Paraguayan, 26-year-old Venezuelan, and a 19-year-old Argentinian basically being their big spends, right? And you can win while also pursuing this strategy because ultimately Miami will be spending more on these players than a lot of the clubs in MLS. Transfer fees, you're talking about $7, $8 million. Again, before you've even paid the contract. So the way that soccer works is in order to get a player, everything is done on money. Although within MLS, there are trades. But for the most part, it's trades for money, not trades for players. But for the most part, if you're buying a player in the world market, you pay what's called a transfer fee first. Meaning that if, let's say, Inter Miami wanted to buy Cristiano Ronaldo from Juventus, you have to go to Juventus first and say, how much are you willing to sell him for? $100 $100 million. Okay, so now Inter Miami has to pay Juventus $100 million and then has to pay Cristiano Ronaldo his salary. So it, the $100 million is before you've even paid the player. Think of, I think it was, was it Daisuke Matsuzaka in baseball that was a bit like this where Major League Baseball had to pay the Japanese team that that had him at the time I to, to, so. to, to, to then go and sign him, uh, the Boston Red Sox did. So that's... Think of that, but that's every acquisition in soccer. And so we're talking 6 or $7 million for a young Argentinian player, and then you pay his salary, which would be upwards of you know, 800000 to a $1 million. And so it's a pretty big, pretty big outlay you have here for some of these guys, and I think that Miami will kind of spend on a level um, that's above some of the other teams in Major League Soccer, and so I think they have a very good chance to win. ultimately. In soccer, because the currency is money. It's not, I mean, front office smarts matters, coaching matters, all that stuff matters. But ultimately, richest teams win. Teams that spend the most money win. And so, for me, looking at the way that Miami is going to go forward, and I, I think they have a chance to win big because they're spending money at this level. But to me, the thing that was interesting as it relates to the Tyler Boyd potential signing for Miami is that there were even Miami fans that I follow on social media that were saying, we don't want him, even though it'd be great for our club, because we don't want him in MLS. We want him to play in Europe, in a better league, because it's, it's a better level of competition. I told you that's going to be a problem with this. No, it, it, it could be, and, and ultimately that's what Tyler Boyd decided. Tyler Boyd decided that he wanted to play in a better league. And so he plays for, he plays for Besiktas in Turkey, and he's hoping to be upwardly mobile and get to better leagues and better leagues and better leagues, and that Miami didn't attract this player because he wanted to be in a better league, and that there were fans here, even against the interest. And that, for me, is something that I'm not, I'm not crazy about, right? I wanted Tyler Boyd to play in Miami because he would help Miami win. I don't care about the... I mean, I care about the national team and the ultimate success of it, but I want to see good American players, international players, play for our club. And it was really interesting to me the way that fans put the national team above even their club. And I, I don't think that's the case around the world. And I'll be curious, once Miami actually starts to play in Major League Soccer and starts to be competitive and you're interested in the team and you're invested in the team, that you're going to put the club above even your country and that you want that player to be playing for your team, not caring about his national team trajectory. And so I was just a bit interested in that dynamic of things. But uh, obviously, if anything happens with Inter-Miami, I'll be here to talk about our big soccer guys. So uh, that will certainly happen in the future. Coming up next, though, we're talking Miami Heat basketball with Ira Winderman of the South Florida Sun Sentinel. Radio.com.
Radio.com. Until 10 o'clock tonight on 560 WQAM. I'm going to talk some Miami Heat here with Ira Winderman, who covers the Miami Heat for the South Florida Sun Sentinel. You check him out on Twitter at Ira Heatbeat. And Ira has returned from his sojourn across Sacramento in Las Vegas and is back home in South Florida and ready to talk some Miami Heat basketball. Ira, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing good. I'm, hope- I'm hoping we can do today's interview only in one interview and there won't be. <laughs> Literally, the emergency callback an hour later. I mean, I was the guy on the QAM airwaves, I guess it was last Wednesday, and I'm like, or, or maybe even Thursday. It was Thursday like, night, no, yeah. No, that'll never happen. There's no way that Russell Westbrook's going to Houston with Chris. Come on, an hour later. Yes, Chris, exactly as we thought an hour earlier. Yes, it was crazy. Okay, now the new one is, uh, is Chris Paul, and, yeah. and whether or not that uh, will be something that the Heat would consider. Do you think the Heat are considering it? And to, I, I posed it earlier as it has to be – a pick positive trade that they net more picks than they give out in order for that trade to really be worth it. If they can get back both of their original picks, I would consider doing that trade, but only if that happens. Are are, are you sort of in a similar place? Yeah. I I, know it's funny because you're actually phrasing it to me with the heat trade for Chris Paul. And it's honestly, Chris Paul would be the trade filler, right? I can get two first round picks for Oklahoma city thunder I would consider taking on that additional year in 2021-22 and dropping the cap space, but that's what it would have to be. And, and if you go by, by what Brian Windhorst was saying on SportsCenter yesterday, where they want something back in return, if I can get 21 and 23 back and then give them a conditional ooh, 24 or 25, something like that, yeah, I would consider it for this reason, Chris. I want to maximize the Jimmy Butler years and the years on his contract. So, yeah, I think I would do that. But really, Chris Paul is the filler. It's like, how can I get two first-round picks after losing two first-round picks? But let's talk about him as a player, though, because I think a lot of people uh, have sort of written off Chris Paul. And look, I think he's staring down the barrel if Miami doesn't pull this trade off of NBA Siberia, because there's no getting out of that contract. There is no, uh, like people say, oh, what if he took a buyout? His buyout would have to be $90 million for for, for, for it to be worth buying him out. Uh, but for me, when, when you look at the way that, he, that his last season played out, and people are going, well... He is now a, a, a less than superstar player because his numbers took a drop and in the playoffs he didn't give enough for them to try and win the championship. I think he's a bit of an underrated asset from a playing point of view because he is a player that it basically just stood and watched James Harden play basketball for the last and year and for, for the last two the, years. And you saw the splits. And when James Harden was off the floor, Chris Paul was a very productive basketball player mm-hmm. last season for the Rockets also. So you're asking me a, a sort of a two-part question here. You're asking me straight up. If they're both playing the same amount of minutes to the best of their ability, who is better, Chris Paul or Goran Dragic? No offense to Goran Dragic, I would say Chris Paul. But Chris, here's part two of that equation. So it's not that I'm just subbing him in for Goran Dragic. I'm also subbing him in for a lot of the minutes that Justice Winslow Mm. would play at point guard. And I still contend this. I know we spoke about it a lot last year also. I think the only highly efficient place for Justice Winslow in the lineup 
is it point guard or call the position what you want, point forward but as a primary ball handler. And I think once the ball goes out of his hands, I know as a defender, I know as a defensive coach, I'm not paying a lot of attention to him on the court. So it's not only, okay, you're going to trade Goran Dragic and his $19.3 million as the starting point for matching up you know, Chris Paul's contract. I get that. But if you're keeping Justice Winslow, Chris, I'm not so sure that Justice Winslow would be the same player because the minutes wouldn't be there. Chris Paul would probably play, eh, say, 32 minutes a game at point guard. So is there enough minutes on the floor? Are there enough minutes on the floor for Justice Winslow to do best what he does best? Probably not. And the, the other aspect, I mean, the, 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 the thing that might work in the Heat's favor is that Chris Paul would also probably miss a fair few games. So you'd have Justice Winslow uh, sort of. But, but for me, so, so you, you're now under the impression, we're joining you by Ira Winderman of the Sun Sentinel, that Justice Winslow's future is as a point guard in the NBA and that ultimately he might be a lesser player in a different role, yes. but the, the, the best way to maximize him now is to yes. only play him as a point guard. Well, mostly play him as a point guard. Look, no one only plays one position because it's a possession-by-possession possession game, and you're going to be cast in different roles. But I, I think that was the best use of him. Chris, I'm just not sure. Even with the way he shot three-pointers, yes, his percentage was up last year when he was left wide open. He does not have the fastest release. So unless he's getting really good spacing, I'm not so sure, I would say the defensive coach is going to say, hey, track this guy at all times. He's a three-point threat. I don't think he's viewed that way. I don't think he's viewed as a finisher off the cut off of getting the pass. I think he's more of a free train kind of player with the ball in his hands. So yeah, I, I just don't think when I'm casting my lineup for my next time I'm going to be chasing a championship and be a contender, I don't know where Justice would be. He's not athletic enough for a three. He's not really big enough for a four or imposing enough for a four. And, and, and is it two? I just Again, like a three, I just don't think he has that wing athleticism that you necessarily need. And more than that, I think he's comfortable on the ball. So that's part of the equation. If Chris Paul, at an average of $40 million, is going to be on your team for three years, he's going to be your point guard. Yes. He's missed at least 21 games each of the last three years. But that's not the same thing as having a full-time role as just going in when a guy is injured. But do you not think that's a concern for the Heat going forward with Winslow if he's going to stay on the team? And ultimately, in his career, is that ultimately a, a superstar player is a primary ball handler, right? Someone who has the ball in their hands all the time. Yes, and if Justice Winslow is not a superstar player with, and, and he has to be a primary ball handler, then ultimately he's probably never, he's probably never going to be that guy, a point guard on a championship winning team. What he'll be, I think, is an efficient role player. Look, they gave him a role player contract. I know it sounds sure. crazy, Chris, but three years flat at $13 million per year. With a team option. Player numbers. That, that, yeah, that's role player numbers. That's Kelly Olynyk numbers. That's what you get for an eighth man in today's crazy, wackified contract. NBA. I think that's what he is right now. But you know what? He can also be an efficient role player for this reason. Look, I think he can be very good as a point guard. But I think he could be good as a power forward, good as a small forward, good as a shooting guard. So he also could be a jack-of-all-trades. So when someone's injured, boom, if I have him in reserve, I could start him at the four, start him at the three, start him at the two, start him at the one. That's a good thing to have also. He can be a nice player. I'm not, I'll give it to you point blank because I always do this with you. Do you think at any point in his career Justice Winslow will be an all-star? I don't. Okay, right. So then I think we're on the same page. Mm -hmm. I think you could maximize him at point guard, 
but I don't think you stress the maximization mm-hmm. of Justice Wins- Winslow as how you build your rotation and how you build your roster. And ultimately, for me, how you justify your moves, right? I don't think you say, well, we've got to make this move so that Justice Winslow can remain the point guard. Yeah. If you can upgrade a point guard Absolutely. or upgrade a, a, a primary superstar, you go and do it, even if it's at the expense of Winslow. Now, it's funny that we have these conversations, and then I start go looking things up. Uh, so last year, Justice Winslow took 256 threes and 171 one of them were classified as wide open, meaning yeah, they're six you. feet uh, between yeah. he and the defender. So that's like nearly three quarters. And he shot them well, uh, but ultimately, as you say, if a team dedicated more focus towards Justice Winslow, which we don't know if they would, would right. that shooting, would that three point percentage go way down by virtue of them them not all being wide open? Yeah, there's two things as a three-point shooter you have to do. One, you have to make them, obviously. Yeah. But two, as you know, Chris, it's the quick-release guys. The guys who have the long, drawn-out release, they can be mitigated by great closeout defense, like the Heat had in their big three years. It's the guys who get them up quick, like the Steph Curry and Clay Thompsons. Those are the guys you have to track because there's no time to spare. With a guy like Justice Winslow, if you're even running the closeout guy at him, there's a very good chance he's going to opt for the escape dribble anyway and you're therefore going to take him off of that shot. So the second factor in it, is he a quick-release guy? I don't think he is, and I think that makes the difference also. So, so yes, you can upgrade. You're upgrading with Jimmy Butler. You're upgrading with Chris Paul. The ironic thing about both of them is I think those guys are sort of like hired assassins who were best to be on a team that's going to go deep in the playoffs. Because even though Chris Paul has struggled getting that deep, he can make the kind of play that can make a difference in a playoff series. The question is, number one, do you get to the playoffs? And two, can you make a deep enough run to really maximize those two players? And uh, the other thing I looked up was the on-off court with uh, Harden and Paul, and it's it's astounding. Like Chris Paul uh, last year, so per 36 minutes, which is a metric mm-hmm. that they use uh, to sort of standardize the amount of time, right. was a 22-point, 12-assist uh, guy with uh, with Harden off the floor, 43% from the field, but 39% uh, from three. I mean, it's 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 a night and day difference. I think Chris Paul could potentially be an undervalued asset if Absolutely. his if his contract didn't pay him 38 million dollars. Yes, and also, and, and Jimmy Butler's usage numbers aren't anywhere close to James Harden, so Jimmy Butler can play off the ball, has played off the ball in many of his stops, so you know that he could be that kind of player also. Mm -hmm. Chris Paul is an upgrade. Chris Paul is an upgrade on whatever the Heat had a point guard last year. No offense to everyone the Heat had a point guard. Again, he's eating up that much of your cap. The first two years don't matter, Chris, for this reason. You're giving up of Chris Paul, I think it's like $36 million next year. You're giving up $19 million of Goran Dragic, because obviously you would have to swap him out. Mm-hmm. You certainly, if you put in Deion Waiters and James Johnson, I think you, number one, can survive without them, and that'll be money that was going to be on your books anyway for the next two years. Sure. So the only long-term year, what you're saying is, is taking on one additional year of Chris Paul at 36 years old, too much. And you know what's going to change all this, Chris? Next week, I believe it's, it's July 22nd, Bradley Beal can decide whether he wants to take his three-year extension from the Wizards. If Bradley Beal takes his extension from the Wizards, I think it's more likely Pat Riley considers pulling the plug and making a Chris Paul deal. Mm-hmm. If Bradley Beal sends up the smoke signal, I'm going to wait for 2021, I think that's when Pat Riley says, hmm, one more year of Chris Paul, or am I going to be in the 
Bradley Beal sweepstakes, and we all know what, what Bam Adebayo tweeted out last week, keeping an eye on when Bradley Beal was draft eligible, saying yeah. Miami was the place he wants to be. So I think we all have to monitor the Bradley Beal extension deadline or, or opening date on the 22nd. If Bradley Beal says to the Wizards, thanks but no thanks, I think it's like three years, $111 million, then it's game on for Pat Riley. Or does Pat Riley then go to the Wizards? If I can secure two first-round picks for you and a pick of any player on our roster other than Bradley Beal, would you deal now? And then think about it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expand this, Chris, because you know mm-hmm. what? I'm, it's late. We can have fun with this, okay? <laughs> what if we do a three-team deal where I take Chris Paul for whatever pieces are, are necessary from Oklahoma City, and then I trade – Maybe even Justice Winslow and two first-round picks I get from Oklahoma City for Bradley Beal. Would you be up for that? Um, yeah, I, I, t- to me, positioning yourself to go to go and get Bradley Beal is probably more important than getting Chris Paul. But again, to me, it, it depends on what you get back in terms of picks. If you can get pick neutral again uh, fr- from this trade, it allows you to, to execute trades like the Bradley Beal trade because right. um, whether you're signing him into space or you're trading for him, uh, Bradley Beal uh, is going to be something that costs you a lot. Whether it's salary cap space or first-round picks, um, that's something that the Heat have to be prepared for. But uh, yeah, to me... Like and and the other thing that that you mentioned in this hypothetical scenario in terms of waiting for July twenty second for this extension uh, right. to potentially kick in is that the Heat have time on their side. They don't have to make this trade tomorrow. They don't no have to one, make this trade no the next month. Has, no one has to. This is not like yeah. those deals the Heat had with Whiteside where they had to get under the hard cap mm-hmm. where they couldn't finish the Butler signing. You're absolutely right on that. And I think the Heat are also looking at Goran Dragic as the kind of asset that a team that's a contender and their point guard gets injured during the summer, during camp, early in the season might say, hey, we need this guy now. Maybe even the Lakers or a team like that where they can trade with another team's cap space to make something move, you know, to make something work. So that's possible also. I think that he'd make this deal the first moment they could wind up plus two in first-round picks in any kind of equation, maybe even drawing a third team into it. Joined here by Ira Winderman of the Sun Sentinel here on WQAM. I just wanted to ask you before you go about uh, the Dion Waiters thing. Now, uh, I was saying in the, in the last segment, so for those of you that don't know in the audience, Dion Waiters posted a message on Instagram. I don't know if it was necessarily it's really explaining uh, what happened to him in terms of uh, in terms of his weight gain last year and now his weight loss. Now he feels like better place, but that he went through sort of a period of, of depression a year ago from the amount of criticism and the inability to play basketball as a result of the injury. Now, uh, what I was saying in the previous segment was I don't feel bad for saying that Deion Waiters was out of shape because he was out of shape, and ultimately it's a fundamental requirement of being a professional basketball player while right. also saying that the cruelty of people on social media probably goes a bit too far sometimes. Yes, it does, but here's the thing I don't get about all these athletes and the cruelty of social media. Why do they pay attention? I mean, I know, Chris, half the time I never look at my mentions or things like that. I know there are people very into that. They think it's important to connect with the readers. I'm lucky. I do a thing called Ask Ira at thisunsettled.com. I get real questions from people who actually have to give me their names and their emails. So it's a little less, you know, easy for them to be anonymous there. But I think most athletes need to turn that off. I, I think athletes have enough way to get feedback from family, from coaches, from teammates, from people they actually see face to face. So one... I'm sorry, Dion, you were offended by people in your mentions, but you don't have to go there. Number two, like you mentioned, Chris, he was out of shape. And number three, what bothered the Heat more than anything 
is that he went through his rehab out of shape. And their feeling is, and certainly if you talk to any personal trainers, you have to come into rehab in your best possible shape. That's what facilitates a faster rehab. So the Heat were upset about this. I'm glad that Dion believes he's back in shape. I'm going to wait for the Heat to do all their testing and know that and to see it. But you know what? I think it's like, again, I even mentioned it in my story today at the Sun Sentinel, some people refer to what happened to Dion as body shaming. I think there are certain jobs that body shaming is sort of part of the job in the fact that as an NBA player, I think it's a job requirement to be in shape. Is that asking too much? And the point that I was making is that the Heat, so they talk so much about their culture, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't the culture ultimately, if we distill it down, you are more committed to your craft here than you are in other places. Yeah. And almost the fundamental tenet of that is being in shape. Like, they obsess yeah. about being in shape. So, yeah. I'm, I'm again, when, when people get mad at me for saying that the Heat being mediocre is so against type with the Heat, they're the ones that call themselves a championship organization. And when, right. when, when you say that Deion Waiters is out of shape, that is the ultimate disrespect to the culture, which is the thing that Heat fans and Heat organization members most hold up. And when they gave you the ultimate respect of a four-year, $60 million contract, yeah. it's when they said, well, we believe you can follow the culture. That's why they were so upset at him. That's why they were upset at James Johnson. It wasn't a matter of in shape or not in shape or getting there. It was you had an injury, injuries happen. But when you started your rehab, you didn't start from the best possible position, and we took care of you. We invested the ultimate faith in NBA cap dollars to you, and this is what you gave us. So, so I, I think some of the shaming was brought on by the players themselves. You can be fat elsewhere. You can go to other places and not have your body fat. It used to be, remember uh, Bill Ferran was a former strength coach. Players used to joke how he would chase them around the building with his calipers to get their <laughs> body fat, to measure their body fat. That's what the Heat do. You knew that. When yeah. Dion took the $60 million, he knew, or $50 million, he knew that that was the case. So to me, you knew what you were getting into. So yeah, if someone called you out of shape, if they called you fat, if they called you whatever, they meant as it vis-a-vis as related to the Miami Heat, and he was. If he's back with the program now, God bless him. I hope the injury and all the work it took to get here didn't take too much out of him, but at least he gives himself a fair chance. Uh, now, before we go, um, this uh, this just happened. Breaking news. <laughs> no, it, it's it, it's not that big. Uh, so so <laughs> yeah, I'll call you again in ten minutes. Uh, the Rockets uh, officially announced the acquisition of of, of right. Russell Westbrook uh, for Chris Paul and two first round picks. There was a thought that they were sort of leaving it open to see if they can work Miami in, Miami in as the third team in the trade. But it's going to go ahead with Chris Paul going to Oklahoma City first, and then they'll figure it out from there. So I guess right. that, I mean, that that little detail that, has been sorted. Yeah. And, and that nothing is imminent with the Heat because right now they're sort of at loggerheads just like they were mm-hmm. when the Thunder were asking the Heat for Bam and for Justice and for Tyler Hero, and the Heat basically just drew the line. So now it's a matter of who's going to bend or not bend. And, Chris, what I'm curious about more than anything is this. How is Chris Paul going to play it? Is he going to be the good citizen and deal with it? Or through his agent and through his people, is he going to make life miserable for the Thunder? That's what we're about to find out in these intervening two months before training camp opens. So you really never check your ad replies? I, I rarely do. Sometimes if someone mentions they made a mistake, they'll bring it out to me. But you know what? You can make yourself crazy. And the worst Agreed. part is, I don't, but my wife does. 
And so she texts me, you got to block this guy. You got to block this guy. So basically, she tells me who I need to block. And you know what the worst part is? Because people are probably listening. They then contact my son, who sometimes has helped me tweet, and he unblocks people when I don't even know about it. So it really is a family affair, Chris. Yeah, it really is. Listen, I've I've dealt with the same thing on a far smaller scale, but sometimes people will say mean things about me, and I'm I'm getting texts going, hey, is everything okay? Like, is this person going to try and find you? But ultimately, it's it's utterly meaningless. Ira Winderman, check him out on Twitter, at Ira Heap. Being I very much appreciate his time, and hopefully we won't have to call you in an hour. And hopefully not, and people don't stalk me. Thank you, Chris. Ira <laughs> Winman joining us here. Chris Whittingham on 560 WQAM. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.